Hello and welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast on cue with. I'm your host, Gene Priest, and I am extremely excited about today's episode. I will be joined by the ridiculously talented Ben Lovett. You may know Ben from some of his past work, such as the orchestral tension he so delicately and perfectly added to the horror films The Ritual and I Trap the Devil, as well as the synth-heavy sci-fi vibes he brought in 2015's Synchronicity. Today I caught up with Ben to discuss his latest work, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, in theaters Friday, October 9th. And now, on to the conversation. To walk with me and be safe. Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining me. I hope you've been doing well and uh, hopefully keeping your creativity in these uh, really kind of odd times we've been living in lately, right? Like, just yeah, I've been doing the been doing well the 2020 version of that, whatever whatever I, that means. It's just a it's a whole readjustment. Like, okay, cool. So, like, I've lived my entire life up to okay. Now I start over and relearn how to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been it's been interesting, and I'm sure that working on a uh, new feature film was absolutely no different um to kind of uh you know just give you some extra things to do right and figure out yeah i've been really fortunate so um the wolf of snow hollow we did in late 2019 mm-hmm. and it's just the movie's been finished but it's just sort of been in covid jail all year uh, yeah but i had signed on to a bunch of other projects early in the year like in january right after sundance mm-hmm. so i have oddly stayed slammed busy through this whole thing but all on projects that were already shot last year no that's all yeah that's uh, true that's the production world you know you stay ahead of it yes and so i don't know what the next nine months are going to look like you know i could be staring at a a desert but (laughs) the last nine months or so have been oddly uh busy for me which has given me a very i I feel very very fortunate considering you know what a lot of people are going through but it's giving me a, a my own strange unique version of something that is already strange and unique right you know, in terms of just the situation of this year i know i know it's kind of that thing man you just kind of adapt and roll with the punches and then maybe mm-hmm. when all this is over you're going to take a little vacation out to who knows joshua tree uh just somewhere yeah, we'll crazy see. and remote just so you can kind of like reset what life is like okay i have to re-remember what things were like before it's it has it's, it's gotten really weird but um yeah if you don't mind, just to kind of like start this off, like, do you mind to set up just for any listeners that haven't uh, maybe seen the trailer? Um, give a little setup just um, about the film, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, in general. It's uh, it was written and directed by Jim Cummings, correct? It is. Uh, Jim is the the star of the movie as well. He's oh, nice. kind of a creative force of nature. He uh, this is his second feature film. Jim's first film, Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. Um, won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance as a short, and then they crowdfunded money to turn the short into a feature, and then he debuted that at South by Southwest, and they won the Grand Jury Narrative Prize for Features there. And so this film, and and that film is exceptional. And um, He's also been producing for a long time, right? I remember seeing that he produced uh, the film Cretia, and um, I, I remember that movie being just fantastic. And when I saw, you know, I was like, okay, well, if he produced that now, you know, he's going to keep in line with that same sort of like, you know, really twisted darkness. But like, I think that this, I, again, the, the trailer alone for me was like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be fun. Well, Jim has a very, very unique uh, style and a very unique blend of 
sort of drama and comedy. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, for people who have seen Thunder Road, uh, they, they'll kind of know what I'm talking about. I think it's something you kind of – you get it or you don't. Um, right, it, right. It, it's, it's kind of like he finds a way to tap into a sort of absurdity and a, and a, and a dark humor in just how – awful life right. can be <laughs> but i mean that in the best way in yeah, a way yeah. that i absolutely can i really really the word is more like it's how bittersweet life right. can be really is what yes. it is it's like all the sweet is bittersweet and you know all and the, what is the sweet without the bitter you know what's what's the good without right. the bad yeah. like you have to have he this. just taps into something uh that's distinctly his own and yeah. when i got contacted about this film um it was the producer's uh, Jim works a lot with a group called Vanishing Angle, and mm-hmm. they're a production company in L.A. and um, who did Cresha and had done a lot of other things that that uh, Jim was working on previous to Thunder Road. And they have a they have a, a collective of of really inspired and talented people out there. And I had worked with um, the producers on a film about four or five years ago called American Folk, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, they that gave was me great, a ring. And was- oh, have you seen it? Okay, great. Yeah. And and that was uh, that was a really rewarding experience. I really liked their camp and what they mm-hmm. were all about. And so they gave a call and they said, you know, we have this werewolf movie. You know, what's your schedule like? Done. And, and I said, <laughs> yeah. I was like, you had Tell me, me a about werewolf. this werewolf movie. <laughs> uh, and they said, well, it's this guy Jim Cummings. You know, and I had heard about Thunder Road, but I had not slowed down enough to to see it. And they said, well, you know, watch it because you should sort of know what you're getting into. And I think I stopped the movie after about 10 minutes and picked up my phone and called him. And I was like, I'm, oh, wow. whatever you got, I'm in, I don't need to read the script or yeah. know that. just count me in whatever this guy's doing next. I, I want, I want in. Oh my God. That, so that's, that's kind of like how you got involved into this project then, because you, you got the opportunity to see it and, and literally just scooped it right up. Like I have to be a part well, of this. I had not even seen this. I just watched his first film and oh, was just like, man, I just yeah, like, you like watched style. Thunder Road. Yeah. Yeah. Man. I could just tell, I could just tell like that he had a thing and was doing something and coming yep. from a certain perspective that I immediately just felt like I got it and I, and I really liked it. And, yep. um, and I mean, the reality is I probably made up my mind, but I probably watched, got, got to the end of the movie and then called and was like, you know, yeah, yeah. I, you know really, I'd love like, to be a part of whatever you, whatever, the, whatever a werewolf movie version of this is. Exactly. You can count me in. And, you know, again, I can't overstate it enough. Werewolf movies are never a bad thing. I mean, nah. it's, it's always a plus. Um, yeah. With that being such, you know, talking about werewolves, that's a very, uh, that's a very iconic thing to do, you know, within the mm-hmm. horror genre or any genre, really. Um, so for you, coming into this project, knowing what you knew, what was the inspiration that you had to, like, pull from? And kind of where did you even start when you knew what the script was and you knew kind of what theme and direction you wanted to take it? I think my starting point was um, you you could tell right away that it's uh, – it's a big problem in a small town mm-hmm. and you've got these guys who are kind of out of their depth, you know, these, these sheriff's deputies trying to solve this series of murders that are happening on the full moon. And, you know, you, we're kind of with our one guy who's, who's keeping a lot of plates spinning in his own personal life mm-hmm. and, and just trying to convince everyone around him that there's no such thing as werewolves <laughs> And, um, you know, so I, I don't know, it, it felt like, um, because it's not like a big, slick, 
big budget Hollywood looking movie. It's right. still kind of feels like a like a like an indie film yeah. in a way. Um but in a, in the in the best way. I mean, it's just like it feels like a nice like very contained um very practically driven film. This isn't some yeah. big CGI monster movie. It's like an it feels like a like an indie dark comedy. I was know? about to say so like I haven't seen the film but I have seen the trailer and one thing that jumped out to me was I love the overall look and again I'm a video editor so like I a lot of times go to like color correction and you know what mood was someone mm-hmm. setting and just seeing the trailer and the way that you know the coloring and just the palette that was used it has this really like soft look that almost gives me a feeling um I I, I want to immediately go in my mind to like 80s horror you know like I, yeah. I I I even though it's modernized but the feel that I get just automatically says okay this is going to be one of those movies that yes it's going to be scary but it's going to be most important fun and you well, see I just that sort of, i sort of started taking stock of all the all the things that were on on deck right mm-hmm. which was that that look and that visual palette and the aesthetic the fact that it's orion pictures right and exactly. and what we grew up watching with all these great orion pictures films yeah. and um you know they did everything from RoboCop to the first Terminator. And I know. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And when I Silence saw the, the Orion Lions logo, and, I was like, oh, yeah. this feels nost- – I, I already felt nostalgic before the trailer started just by seeing that Orion. That's such a good good point. Like that's that's insane. And then you add in Robert Forster and you've got like yeah. this guy who's a, a, a cinema noir legend, yeah. you know, and like, you know, famous, you know, he was, he has Academy Award nominee for, for Jackie, his performance of Jackie Brown. Yeah. And, you know, there's just, there was uh, taking stock of all the things that were all the cards that were in the deck. It felt like there was an opportunity to lean into something a little bit more old school mm-hmm. not retro but even further uh, yeah. back like there was more of a feeling that i could maybe get into some classic hollywood mystery noir stuff that was the first and that thing kind of led me when i heard this. yeah it just feels that way it does man i see a detective or someone sneaking around almost in every track you know i can in my head yeah. see this guy just tiptoeing and oh that's right because you've listened to the score yeah, but you yeah. haven't seen the movie right Correct. oh okay so I have okay. no context well, to any of these scenes. So like, oh, I've, that's amazing. I've got a great question for you, and I'll give you that in a little while. But yes, it does. It has a throwback, throwback feel. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't like a, an effort to be retro or, or kind of anything. But it was really just like where to draw inspiration from for what could give the score and give the movie like a personality, like a right. sonic sort of fingerprint that mm-hmm. felt distinct. And um, instead of just kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like there was a, a way that the score could kind of help speak to the intentionality of, yeah. of like the, 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 the way the movie, the perspective of it. And there's a, there's a sort of awareness, self-awareness of itself as a – like it's not like a break in the fourth wall kind of thing. Right. There's just like a sense about it that's aware of all the other classic monster movies. The humor movie kind of lends to the absurdity. Yeah. Like you, sure. you get it. And when I started looking back at, um, you know, for inspiration from that era, that like Bernard Herrmann yeah. era of of classic mystery noir stuff, there there was a sense of where the music could be at at once uh, very big mm-hmm. and yet also speak to the sort of comedy and the absurdity of it at the same time. So it could service your action beats and your scary scenes, but with – a bit of a wink 
and a bit of a little elbow to it, you know? I, I can already tell, you know, just by seeing, you know, just some of the imagery. I mean, this is one of those films that I think that is going to be talked about, you know, in the future. It'll be one of those genre films, right, that, like, has such a style that, you know, uh, from the trailer alone, I can see that in, you know, the way that they creatively took that direction. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. I, I, I certainly got that feeling just from the camp of people who were making this movie. This doesn't it didn't it's not assembly line mm -hmm. production filmmaking. It's a community like a group of exactly. artists, a group of people who like working together, who sort of, uh, you know, came together and with a wild idea and a, and a little bit of, you know, a couple sticks to rub together and, mm -hmm. and make a fire with. And um, that's always the challenge of that can be very rewarding, but uh, oh, yeah. you know there was there was content there. There was for, for me, I, I you know it's like werewolves are cool, but <laughs> like what's the story? You know, right. like what what where's the part of it where um, you know I can relate to something? Where's the humanity that, of I, can it, that I can get into? That exactly. I can yeah, because I need to know where to come from. Yep. I don't really think I'm good enough at this job to just sort of be able to like flip the right assembly of switches and kind of calibrate <laughs> to perfect where I, I, you know, I, perfect I have to kind of be able have a preset to, yeah. for this. You don't, like... uh, yeah, I don't have a preset for that. <laughs> and so I just kind of have to be able to, I, I got to get it. I got to yeah. feel like there's something in there that, um, that, you know, speaks to, to something in me. And, yep. um, this, this, this had that and it gave me a way in. That's amazing. And, and so, you know, the inspiration aside, like you've, been very well versed in making scores that are very heavily uh, orchestral. And that's something that I've loved about, you know, the stuff you've done in the past. For example, The Ritual blew me away, man. That the, oh, that thanks. score is beautiful. And it just I about, it just about killed me making that one. Really? That <laughs> yeah. That's It was an intense experience. I'll bet. I mean, the music I was about to say has an intensity that like you have the ability to use something so minimal and add not only attention, but a beauty at the same time. And I think that that's a hard thing to find, uh, maybe in a score in general, but especially in my opinion, when you're working with like strings, you know, they definitely lend to emotion, but to be able to use something on the edge that can give you both feelings at once of anxiety, <laughs> as well as like this immersion into this world, like that's a hard thing to do. And as a composer, I want to know kind of how you get your headspace into, you know, without having, you know, I'm sure you, there are definitely not. Um, I mean, who, who knows? Maybe you play every single orchestral instrument and I just am not aware of that. But how do you get into writing an album like this uh, from the start just as a, you know, producer standpoint? Well, I certainly do not play every orchestral instrument. I'll go <laughs> ahead and dispel that myth right now. Okay. I don't play any of them. And ah. um, I so so writing for them has been. Uh, you know, an adventure yeah. over the years. I've just been, well, you, I guess, I think I'm very sound driven. Uh -huh. And I think that, um, I know some people sit down and they start with a melody or they start with a, a melodic progression. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I'm looking, I think I'm starting by, uh, you know, I start to create sounds or look for sounds that will, that start to feel like they describe the uh, atmosphere of the film, mm -hmm. whether that's emotionally or visually or whatever I might be responding to of yeah. what, of, of whatever thing you can't put your finger on, but you're like, this feels like the movie. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think that it's a, 
it's a, a process of trying to find certain techniques or certain sounds that certain instruments make mm-hmm. that then lead you to well, what could I write for that thing to do? A whole new idea around like yeah, maybe a, sure. uh, you know, just a bow and a string making just a creaking noise that can lead to an entire, uh, you know, cue in itself. Yeah. I mean, I've always said in the past, like, you know, I, I'm a self-taught sort of like, I came at this from more of like a punk rock background yeah, of just yeah. sort of like, well, what would happen if you plug that thing into that thing and then like put that on top of that and then stick that thing in the microwave? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so it's, it's much more exploratory in the sense that like, it's not coming from a, it's not an academic exercise. For right. Me. It's more of an experiential, um, process of trying to come up with things that, um, you know, just sort of see what I can create mm-hmm by chasing a lead or an inspiration from a sound or sometimes it is a melody. Sometimes you just, you sit at the piano and you're like, Ooh, that feels like, you know, that feels like this character or, or this, this aspect of the story that feels like it really describes that. And then you go about, you know, moving that on to different instruments that you have in the Mm -hmm. palette. But I think it, as far as you find yourself writing on a piano. Uh, yeah, I do. And, and I learned to play guitar before, uh, piano, mm-hmm. but it's funny that, uh, and sometimes their, their guitar does make it into my scores, mm-hmm. but it really does feel like, um, because I write songs and, uh, and produce bands and things, yeah. you know, like the guitar seems to be more of a gateway into like songs and the piano seems to be more of a gateway into scores for me. Oh man. See, that's a great way to put it. And I, I did want to say, um, about the production stuff that heavens record with Matt Skiba, uh, huh. let me just yeah. tell you how big of an alkaline trio fan that I was. I mean, I, I grew up in that, you know, that era. Right. So like I grew up sure. in playing in emo bands and, uh, I don't want to say emo, uh, playing in, you know, that, that sort of like scene and growing up around those guys. And I remember when he released that, uh, heavens album, I was knocked back by the production on it. Like, oh, that's awesome. I wasn't expecting that, you know? Yeah, I mean that was me, Skiba, and Joe, like at my house, you know, That's in LA so back, back then, just making this thing over the course of a summer for fun. I mean, really, it yeah. was like we just did that as a side prod. That was never really supposed to even turn into a band really? that toured around, you know, Europe and the states, and all of that kind of happened as a result of it. Just sort of turned out Man. cool, and people really liked it. And Epitaph put it out, and yeah. they got behind it, and then, you know. Um, I think that uh, obviously Skiba having a, a fan base from the trio right, right. is kind of already in place. I mean, the craziest thing about that whole Heavens thing to me in my mind was, you know, we had to sort of assemble a band mm-hmm. of friends to go out and play the songs because it was this like yeah, studio project. Exactly. And so the first show the band ever played was this sold out club in Manchester, England, with people <laughs> screaming their heads off and just excited oh, out of their man. mind. And we're walking out to play our first show. And that's not surreal or just, anything, right? That, oh, that was, it was ridiculous. Another day. It was the most <laughs> fun you can imagine. Yeah. Oh, my so that God. Was, yeah, it was a fun ride with that. That is, I, I can't even imagine like being thrust sort of into that. You know, you get together with your friends and you guys have an idea to make this really moody, you know, kind of throwback album. Gave me lots of like Joy Division vibes, which I always sure. appreciate. And like, next thing you know, oh, look at this. We're in Manchester yeah. and there's a lot of yeah, people we're here. Yeah, we're touring around the UK and we've played 
two shows. And that <laughs> right there, my friend, is where the internet came into play. That like I remember growing yeah. up, they were like tour, tour, tour. You have to, you have mm-hmm. to be on the road. Not in these days, man. It's uh, again, certainly not. Certainly not now. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, definitely all changed. It's it's it, but it's you know for the better, I think you know because I feel like you know for myself and and you may feel the same. There's something comfortable about knowing that like when you're working on a project like this, sure, there are times where you need to get together with other people and collaborate and do that. But a lot of times you get that alone time that you need to put into the, you know, the project. And sometimes the alone time is what you need when you're writing all like that's it's very important. Yeah, but it's also it's I spend so much time alone and this Mm. is such a solitary occupation at times, this film scoring part of it. That part of just to circle it back to an earlier question, yeah. uh, part of why I end up employing a lot of live instrumentation on the scores I do is because I just like being in the studio with musicians. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just like to get together in the room with people who play instruments way better than me. Oh, man. To yeah. take my little ideas and kick them around the room with these people and make them <laughs> sound a lot better than I ever would have been able to on my own. I mean, how rad is that, right? Like, so, like, it, it's cool to think of coming from like a punk rock background or, you know, any other sort of uh, rock, jazz, anything that's not orchestral to know that you could still sit in a room with with these musicians that are infinitely talented you know i mean i love orchestral music so much and that's kind of one of the reasons is that like the skill and precision that you hear like mm-hmm. it's just everything i don't even know i think i would almost be more intimidated to tell them hey guys this is my idea <laughs> like he, I, I want you you know violin guy i want you to do you know this or you know cello this would sound great if you just did a slow sweep i would be afraid they'd look at me like hmm you're a drummer for sure i can tell well well look i i can't i can't even overstate how much like you mentioned the ritual i mean that mm. was the london contemporary orchestra that's johnny greenwood's oh, group you know that's yes. the tom york's group like oh, they do man. they do like live live film screening performances i just got heart palpitations blood, for you, you know? as you said johnny greenwood and tom York. yeah that like just, the like, bar is so high for these Ooh. guys and they work on the most cutting edge yeah stuff so like you know if you if you to t- like pitch them some ideas of like you know yeah it can be like as any self-taught musician around a bunch of really accomplished mm-hmm. well-studied classical players you can't help but carry some bit of insecurity into that situation but like oh, yeah. if you let that get the better of you then you know just you're going to screw up the whole thing and so like for me i guess I, my my way around that is like i just don't I'm not in there. I'm I'm barely. I'm not. I'm no composer. I'm right. barely a musician. I'm a storyteller. Oh, you, wow. and my yeah, job. See. I just do it in a lot of different ways yep. and disciplines. And I just use music primarily as the means to collaborate with people to help tell their stories. That is, and so I've learned a lot about to how to it. communicate to those people. Yeah, but the it's it's if there's a talent anywhere, it's just in maybe having learned over the years how to communicate what I'm trying to accomplish or right. get to, to people who are much more adept at achieving that than me. Yeah. What, I mean, that's, And so if you're listening man. to this and you're thinking that like you want to do this, but you don't have like a background in music right. theory or what, throw that shit out the window. Yeah. Like, that's not the thing standing in your way or preventing you. Dude, I love but hearing that. But you will that. have to face that down. You'll have to get through 
you know, um, this fear that like, well, what if they all realize I don't know what I'm doing? Just right. embrace that. You know, just just know what you want and what you're trying to get to. There are other people who can help you figure out how to get there. I, I've been there. I've had that imposter syndrome feeling before, you know, like I'm doing what I want to be doing. But am I doing it as good as other people do that I look up to? And then I start like, you know, looking in on myself, like, am I out of yeah, my kiss of death? Right yeah. There. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. You just, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to slowly learn, you know, you can't overthink things because it's, it, that's, that's the trap in itself. There's like a Picasso quote that's something like the, the, the chief enemy of creativity is good sense or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, yeah. And there's something related to that with this. It's like the quickest way to, to kill your own ambition is to like, you know, admit to your sit all the things you don't know or, or I don't, you know, I don't know what it would yeah. be, but, but you, you get the idea. Absolutely. It's like, you kind of just have to have the confidence that um, as long as you figure out what it is you're trying to say or mm-hmm. what it is you're trying to get to, um, figuring out the means of how to get there, there's a lot of different roads to take. Absolutely. And um, yeah, it's not about the quality of the musicianship on it or the, the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the, musicality of mm-hmm. it being groundbreaking. It's just, does it tell the story? Exactly. You know, does it make it a better movie? Does yeah. it help clarify the intention of the characters? And see, you the know, great thing it, is, is once you've made an established record like you, know, you obviously have, a director can come to you and they already know that when they enlist you for the soundtrack, they know what kind of vision you're going to bring to it. You know, and that's the cool thing too about being a composer is that you can kind of show your own range of how you portray things. Cause it, it's all subjective. You know, every composer would write a different score. And that's so, right. and that's because we deal in the aspect of the storytelling mm-hmm. that you can't, that's, that's maybe the most subjective part of it. Yes, right. Absolutely. Like, like, you know, if it, if the scene takes place in a dark hallway, there's only so many versions of dark hallway. You're going to be able to light in film exactly. right? or whatever. If the character is a, girl in her 20s there's only so many you know i just mean that like there's a parallel part of any telling any story that yeah. only music describes best i agree with you that you can't completely. write it as dialogue yeah. you can't shoot it and frame it it's just something that is is told by and and understood best yes. by describing it musically they just as human creatures we all have that in common oh yeah and so so yeah, you're a collaborating agent of the story when Man. you come on board. That, see, and that's that's kind of the coolest thing too is is your music has very much um, a sound, you know. And this was something I wanted to get to because uh, I wanted to play my favorite cue uh, from. Oh, I can't wait to know what it is. Uh, yeah, I know. See, see, uh, it, it, it's it's it brings me back to how much Hitchcock I heard in this from the very beginning. And then when I heard this track, it was all over. I was like, that's it. That, this is so good. <laughs> I'm getting chills because I can envision a scene that I haven't even seen yet. But I, <laughs> I know what actions are taking place. And the track is Third Crime Scene. It has uh, such a yeah. fun... Like, it, mm-hmm. th- this song is, is a, a, a very... Uh, when, when, you know, talk about classics. This is as Hitchcock tension and and fun as you can possibly get
it's so cool to to hear you describe uh, the cue and like the movie in your mind from it because I think it's great that these things have an opportunity to live on and and can mm-hmm. can sort of you know take on these other uh, depictions of you know because it does describe very specifically a moment in the film but mm-hmm. it also once it's on the soundtrack it, it's just like the soundtrack is a condensed version of just the spirit of the film yeah. and the idea of what happens in the movie and when you play it you get to sort of retell it to yourself yeah, anyway, yeah exactly. i like that about soundtracks and so and third crime scene is you know you have you you should probably notice from the titles you have first crime scene yep, you have second yep. crime scene you have third crime scene so by the time we're at the third crime scene like the wheels are coming off the uh-huh. bus you know with this guy and this so is when he's his... trying to convince everyone like no for real <laughs> there is a werewolf and they're saying it's a person it's a person there's just a manic energy to the movie at times and there's a few stretches and this is one of them where there is a real cool uh, synchronicity between the the, the edits mm-hmm. and the cutting, the cross-cutting between scenes of the movie and yeah. getting to score. Oh, I can One see those, montages was, happening on this, yeah. you know, fast cuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can sort of even feel it a little bit how it's it's the kind of thing that is really specifically done to picture. Exactly. Because it's, the it's film very, is cut very, to this track. Y- yeah. I love yeah. that. Well, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's actually the Or did you around. score to the film? I yeah. scored it to, yeah. So in the situation like this, I scored this to the way they had cut it to sort of give it wow. like a, a sort of energy that would thread all these different That's why uh, it feels so, together. you know, usually you can lock into like kind of a groove in even, yeah. even in, you know, soundtracks. Cause again, a lot of them are written the other way around where it's to something. Right. So they right. cut it almost to like a beat, but this right. has this like manic and it, it's so fun because the song just changes out of nowhere and, and whoa, whoa, what's that? Like it just yeah. it hits you in so many different ways. It's a lot of sharp pivots, and it turns a lot of quick corners, and and a lot of that is just me responding to how they cut it. And this and, isn't and a minute and thirty nine seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's probably one I should have extended longer or something. But that's kind of where you wind up sometimes when you're responding to what's on the screen. Yeah. It's like it, that isn't a longer piece cut down. That's exactly. me specifically addressing what's on screen. And see, that's something that's really fun to know too. Cause a lot of people do um, sort of have that misconception sometimes when they're looking at film cues and they say, okay, so this was a minute and 36 seconds. So this was the piece of music that was in the film, but not the whole song. And it's like, no, 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 yeah. this it's the, not always like that. Right. Yeah. The cue is what is yeah, that is the sound bed, you know, that, that was mm-hmm. created specifically for that. And mm-hmm. I, I can totally see that now that uh, you've said that. I can absolutely hear how you had so much fun cutting that back to uh, the footage. I couldn't imagine writing that way. That's, yeah. that's a struggle. Um, that track definitely has the spirit of the film in its, in its bones. Oh, yeah. I, I could tell that instantly. I mean, but also another track that we cannot, you know— leave out talking about is uh little red riding hood tell us a little oh, bit about that man that is it is gorgeous thank you uh so that was an idea that kind of came up while we were i was still in the scoring process but a- as happens oftentimes mm-hmm. on film projects they end up starting to assemble you know sales assets and uh-huh. they start cutting a trailer and they start doing all these other things in other parts of the production while you're scoring because yeah. They've kind of finished everything else, and now the it's in music camp, and they start doing all these other things. So they started working on a trailer, and there was this idea to use 
1966 Sam the Sham mm-hmm. recording of Little Red Riding Hood, which is the famous version that yeah. everybody knows. And I was kind of like, you guys are never going to be able to afford to get this. Right, song. right, right. <laughs> and Did I you just guys sort of anticipated before. I, was, I don't know. I was like, I was like, mm, they might, but I, I had yeah. an instinct that just a song, you know, an, an old iconic '60s tune like that yep. is usually pretty tough to get, and pretty pricey. And so I kind of said, well, you know, because <laughs> I've done this. In, uh, yeah, <laughs> I've done this. I've done this in the past uh, on other films, and kind of said, you know, well. We could do our own version, yes. and then you only need to get the rights to the publishing, and we'll do our we'll do a cover of it, and oh, we'll do it man. tailored just for this film. And so everybody really liked that idea, and the fact that I have all these songs I've produced, mm-hmm. you know, to sh- kind of show. They knew, it, yeah. Well, well, yeah, they were like, okay. Um, it wasn't like let me try this. It was kind of like I have other ones I could say, like, look, we'll do it like this, exactly. But whatever you want it to be, and it was Jim's idea, I think, to say, what if it's a female singing the song oh, man. and yeah. that's a song that you know the best way to put it is like there's a campiness like mm-hmm. a 60s sort of campiness to the original recording of that song that almost sort of obscures how strong the lyrics are right until you hear it lift the hood on that a little bit yeah yeah it's just when you look at the lyrics you're just like there's a, there's a, there's a lot here yeah. that can be interpreted and delivered in a totally different way and oh, give absolutely. you a whole different idea. And there was something about the idea of a female voice singing this song about the danger of sort of walking home alone at night. Mm-hmm. There was just like it took on something very sinister and very dangerous yeah. to me. I mean, and it's, it's beautiful. I was, well, I started thinking like, who did I know? It was a vocalist that could embody and deliver yeah. that. And I had worked with Valentina on a song years back that we wrote together. And immediately her her voice is just a force of nature. Yes. And she has such amazing yes. control of her of her singing ability that I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And we really just more talked about the idea of it. And then she kicked a demo back to me that – I mean it's basically the song. I mean yeah. I just sort of – she interpreted that whole – thesis so well, well that then, it was just me, me designing a soundscape around it did you was it yours or her idea to do the extremely rad like spaghetti western style guitar because well, that, between that contrast and her voice <laughs> that's what just nails that feel yeah i would say it's probably somewhere in the middle because i think even in her original demo she had like a little sort of just midi sound mm-hmm. doing that little and, you know, it was like a little – and it was just to kind of indicate like, you know, maybe some kind of element like this is doing that. And then mm-hmm. it was like, oh, well, what if we go get a baritone? You know, I got a guy who's great on baritone guitar and he plays a lot of – he's a Nashville guy, plays a lot of country music. You know, I bet he could dial that sound in great. Oh, yeah. So it was like, hey, give me some options for like, you know, the Sergio Leone version of like yeah. this little three-note lick. And then let's kind of see where that takes us. And and then it grew outward from there. And then we got into all the spooky slide guitar yep. stuff. And, you know, and, and all my string arrangement on that song is ostensibly just an extension of her background vocals. I mean, Valentina's background vocals were part of her original idea and demo. And oh, yeah, you mean was, at the beginning, uh, those little like trills and sort of that like rises and all. Yeah. Well, it's really all of the sort of floating chordal changes mm. that are going on in the chorus and things. It's just like a 
orchestrated version that grew out of the seed that she planted with those vocals. Oh man, that's absolutely beautiful. That's yeah. uh that that's definitely a, another standout track um from this record, which again there's there's a lot of them. Um here's a question because again, as a uh musician myself, I always like to ask everyone this. Um if you had to narrow it down and we, we can even draw it into scope and say on this album, if you had to narrow it down to one piece of gear or instrument that you relied on and used the most personally in the creation of this, what what would that be? This is this is probably not a fun answer to that, but <laughs> I, I it's honestly the the most honest thing I think. All it's I want is honesty. People, That's it. It's the people who collaborated with me yeah. on this were the most indispensable part of it because I had people helping me orchestrate the parts and and, and mm-hmm. put them on charts properly so that I wasn't writing a note that the bassoon can't play. Right, right. You know, uh, you know, which is real easy to do, and I've learned the hard way by being. You know, what I mentioned about uh, this kind of self-taught learning on the job aspect of exactly. my career is you end up writing a, a part for a f- violin or a flute and they're like, I don't have a note that low, you know, and, right. and you, you spend time in the session burning time and money trying yeah. to fix that. So um, whether it's people doing that, people expanding on an idea or a melody and going, you know, here's here's the idea for the thing, you know, as you're orchestrating like what would the what would the clarinets do i, I didn't i didn't write anything but they're mm, going to be here so like yeah. can you can you write like where where would the voice for the clarinet be best oh man um down to the players in the room because yeah. this was a situation where there was no there there really wasn't a budget that would have suggested any real live right. instrumentation much less the entire thing but the idea kind of linking it all the way back to what we were first talking about, the idea of trying to pack like big ideas into mm-hmm. small packages kind of led me to this idea of, well, what would going into that uh, Bernard Herman yeah. Hitchcock era sound, but with a small ensemble of players and exactly. what's the budget version of that sound like? Like right. what is the, what's the version that isn't trying to be those things, but mm-hmm. is clearly inspired buy them and that is the coolest answer that you could give though because when it comes down (laughs) to this like you know what's the most important thing for you to have gotten through this record and for you to say you know the musicians like that is that's one of the things that I don't even think about you know I wouldn't have thought that I would have thought you know maybe you know again I think in terms of effects and things like that but that's literally the best way to look at it because you're giving your vision but also Mm -hmm. allowing them to lend their vision to you know what you're giving them to work from well and the nature of me in a recording session with live players even when it's orchestral players with sheet music in front of them mm-hmm. is still me running into the room every couple of takes waving my arms around <laughs> like oh okay oh, okay so same thing uh, uh cough the front and then like the end like let's do that twice as long and then you guys drop out right here and everybody's marking their pages so it's still <laughs> like i'm still writing it and adapting and changing it yeah. even as we're making it just because it's not just that the instruments are there to express the ideas on mm-hmm. the page and it's that black and white. It's each little part is there to get us to the next phase of it. Right. And then each each part of that instructs me in a different way. So a thing you wrote sitting in your studio on your MIDI keyboard mm-hmm. comes across at you totally different once you're sitting across from eight or nine string players oh, yeah. playing it back to you. And yeah. then you're like, oh, 
Why did I write all three basses playing that? You know, you should be up an octave and like uh, uh, violas, you guys should double that instead of doubling the violins. I don't know why. Just because you're sometimes writing and responding to the way these plugins and stuff sound. Exactly. And then you get in the room and it sounds different. And so to be able to adapt on the fly and to have them be very patient Mm -hmm. and very understanding and not make me feel, not activate my own insecurity about like, what is this guy doing? You know, there's nothing on this sheet but a bunch of whole notes. Like he wants (laughs) to (laughs) kick footballs all the way through the session. Right. And so to, to, to have players that are willing to be like flexible and because for a lot of orchestral players, this is, you have to understand like they don't necessarily always enjoy kind of having to work off the page because right. what they've learned how to do is practice and rehearse and learn a piece of music and execute it flawlessly. Right. So all of a sudden you're pulling the rug out from under them or making them stand on one leg and do it. And it's kind of like that's putting them out of their comfort zone. Exactly. And so – when you have players who can meet you in the middle of that and they're down for a little bit of a wild exploratory right. punk rock recording session, then I think maybe that's a path to getting to something that has some sort of unique character or flavor. Absolutely. And I think that lends to its own special voice because instead of just kind of like distilling the idea through one person, you're now going through an entire orchestra of people who are classically trained to be musicians and that's what they do to put their spin on an already good idea and that's like i mean that must be such a feeling though to do that i mean i can't imagine working in that capacity i really couldn't well and sometimes they have this ability to make an okay idea a Mm -hmm. good idea (laughs) right right, they can make a good idea sound better sometimes they can even make an idea that's okay Sound pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> but you build from that, you know, and, and, and sure. kind of like you become a team as you're doing, you know, I would imagine. H- how long did it take uh, to, to record the score? Well, so the nature of how we had to do this was the only option available to me was to use a smaller group of players mm-hmm. and sort of stack them and kind of have people cover multiple parts, which right. is – it's very it's very time consuming to do it that way and sometimes you're just like trying to find what's the trade-off between you know the, it gets down to very boring like logistic stuff yeah. but it's part of the job like yep. it 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 absolutely influences your creative decisions when you have very specific time and budget limitations. Exactly. So you're saying instead you of recording do. the entire orchestra as you would hear it at once, you're kind of doing standard like, you know, rock music, you know, multi-track recording with, right. you know, segments at a time. Right. Wow. And and part of that was to give me as part of it that the recording of the players for me, be they orchestral players or a drummer or a, you know, a percussionist or whatever Mm -hmm. that's never for me necessarily the last stage of the process right it it, it is fundamentally for some composers you know uh, yeah but for me i need to take what we recorded and then go fuck with it right exactly yeah i gotta kind of take it and and then because again even that part is just another step towards trying to get in the end to something exactly. that's serving the movie best. So once once they've recorded, you still need to put your your mixing and and you know Absolutely. EQing and your your sound on their sound. I get that completely. Because where I might lack in my uh years of 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 uh you know conservatory study and mm-hmm. sort of learning where I where I don't have necessarily like a a a deep history in on the um musical side of it. Right. I have a studio production 
all those years were spent making yep. records and learning exactly. how compressors work. And like, you know, so it was sort of like, that's part of the process for me is usually, because like I said, I kind of always am gravitating back towards like a sound that makes you feel mm-hmm. a certain way. And it's not all about the sound and it's not all about the music. It's right. somewhere where those things meet and how that creates a feeling. Man, that is that is beautifully said. Ben, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, My pleasure. I very much look forward to seeing this film and I will definitely be speaking with you soon. All right. Cheers, James. Thank you. Bye. Once again, thank you so much for listening. That was such a fantastic conversation with Ben, and I honestly cannot wait to see this film. Don't forget, you can grab the soundtrack for yourself on October 9th via Lakeshore Records. Until next time, be safe and be excellent to each other.